Death is the only absolute reality in life, and everything else is just a play game we played to get there. Most of us are never Can I start over, please? Yes. I'm sorry. Did you notice my mistake there? Mike Lambrix is waiting to die. He's been waiting 34 years. Born in 1960, Mike was an altar boy and a boy scout, but by 84, he had been convicted of double murder and sentenced to death by the state of Florida. What you're about to hear is his first-person testimony, taken from letters he's sent, articles he's written, and in answer to direct question posed by me. I should probably point out that I'm neither pro nor anti-death penalty. I just wanted to know what it felt like waiting, knowing you were going to die, but not knowing when, and what, if anything, he wished he'd done differently. I'm Georgina Skull, and you're listening to Regrets of the Dying. I grew up in San Francisco Bay Area during the 1960s and early 1970s when the hippie movement was in full swing. I was the fourth of seven children brought into the world by my mother by the time she was only 24. We moved a lot when I was growing up, so it seemed we were always going to a new school where we didn't fit in. I didn't like school that much, and I dropped out and left home when I was 15. I used too many soft drugs, not hard drugs, and drinking, and it had severe consequences, as through that it destroyed my marriage and led me to death row. On the evening of February the 5th, 1983, Mike and his live-in partner, Francis Smith, met Clarence Moore and Alicia Bryant at a local pub and took them back to their trailer to eat. The state of Florida says Lambricks took his guests outside and one by one robbed and murdered them, beating Clarence with a tire iron, then strangling Alicia to death. Francis Smith says she helped Mike clean up, bury the bodies, and then threw his bloody shirt and the tire iron into a nearby stream. Mike says Clarence and Alicia were outside of the trailer and started to argue. He heard screams, grabbed a tire iron and found Clarence straddling Alicia, strangling her. He hit Clarence with a tire iron and killed him, then returned to the trailer, covered in blood and told his girlfriend Frances the couple were dead. He then went to the bathroom and vomited before washing up. Mike says he and Frances then mutually decided that going to the police wasn't an option. Bought a shovel and superficially concealed both bodies. Mike Lambricks was sentenced to death. Francis Smith testified against Lambricks and escaped prosecution. There were 22 and 31 respectively. My journey to death row began in the, on the morning of Friday, March 23, 1984. Only the day before, Judge Richard Stanley had formally sentenced me to death as I stood before him in the one-room Glades County Courthouse it was merely a formality as there was no question of what the sentence would be. None of my family was present, and that was just as well. I didn't want to be there myself. I knew where we were going now, Florida State Prison, commonly known as the East Unit back then, the Alcatraz of the South. Its reputation as one of the most violent prisons in the country was well earned. My first impression was the smell, an almost suffocating mixture of smoke, body odors of every sort imaginable. I would come to learn that during the winters, they would seal the windows shut. Every meal is served in our cells on plastic trays. We were each given only a plastic spoon to eat, but then eating cold oatmeal or grits with a plastic spoon is not that difficult, and few foods we were served would require more than that. 
My cell has no table or chair, so I balance the food tray on my lap. I pass the day reading a book, if I have a book worth reading, or writing a letter. If we go out to Rick, we're allowed two hours each time, but no more than a maximum of four hours each week. In my world, there are no computers, no cell phones, and although we are allowed to receive magazine subscriptions, few of us can afford to. So what any of us receive is most often shared and passed down the cell block. The magazines not only keep me informed on what's happening in the real world, but also provide pictures of the rapidly changing world beyond us in full color. Prison rules prohibit colored televisions and allow only a small black and white, as well as a small Walkman-type radio. At times, a particular song will play on the radio and someone will holler out. And as others quickly tune into that station, a number of the men will simultaneously break out singing along because all radios must be operated with headphones. The song itself is not heard, only the broken voices of the men each singing along, but not necessarily in tune. Might I interject something real quick? Of course. A lot of this is older writings, and uh, there has been changes. For example, we now do get color TVs. Uh, uh, so... I wanted to make sure we pointed that out, that we do get color TVs, and a few years back they did put tables in each cell, a little small table. It's hard to comprehend just how much life has changed in the 34 years Mike has been incarcerated. So, just as a reminder, in 1984, Calling the Gang was at the top of the charts, Gremlins was breaking the box office at the cinema, and the very first cell phone had only just been sold. While growing up in the suburbs of Marin County, California, it was our Sunday morning family tradition to dress up in our best and pile up in the station wagon and off to church we would go. Following the service, we would jump back into the wagon and often head over to my grandparents' house on the shores of San Pablo Bay, just up from the infamous San Quentin State Prison for a Sunday brunch. Grandpa would say grace as we all gathered around to eat, carefully avoiding the cardinal sin of straining our starched white shirts and yet seeming to always find a way to do so. In those early years, my father and grandfather owned a steel fabrication plant in San Rafael. I was too young to remember the first home I lived in. My first memories was of the house on Oak Spring Drive, and those memories were and still are unpleasant. Although faded and broken by years that have passed, at times I can still remember the violent arguments that led to my parents' divorce, or rather remember hiding from them. About the time I began school, I met my stepmother. She barely spoke English and was originally hired as a housekeeper. Not long after they wed, we moved into a subdivision in San Rafael. There were good times, but there were bad times. My oldest sister, often my only protector, ran away when she was barely a teen, but I understood now why living on the streets off the generosity of so-called hippies and hanging out with bikers was better than staying home. With a half-brother and two sisters, the family grew to a total of ten children. From outside looking in, I suppose we appeared to be an average family. At least, it was the only family I knew, so I thought it was average. But then came the early 70s, and the family business was abruptly forced into bankruptcy. By then, I discovered the means to escape reality, first with alcohol, then drugs. My grandparents suffered a car accident and died a few weeks later and my dad but all but gave up, even trying as he found his own escape in even heavier drinking. As as my stepmother took control, life at home went from bad to worse. 
Any pretense of parental supervision was now gone and I was free to explore the park all day, every day as if it was my private playground. As a bonus, I quickly discovered a seemingly infinite supply of free beer as campers upstream would place their beer in the icy Merced River of Yosemite Park only to be washed downstream by the rushing current. Entire six packs were there for the taking and in surprisingly abundance. What I couldn't drink was easily sold or traded for pot, and the best summer of my life became a long party. A few months later, we moved to Florida, and Dad bought a small house in a farming area southwest of Plant City, known as Turkey Creek. My stepmother claimed it to be her domain and made it clear that only her children would be allowed to live in the house, but we didn't complain. With the family reduced to living on welfare, we were all forced to skip school and work on local farms or orange groves. Any income was used to feed us. If any of us dared to protest, or God forbid not work at all, the physical repercussions were immediate. But once the day's job was complete, that pretense of parental supervision quickly disappeared and we did as we pleased. As the months passed, my stepmother demanded more of us, and we became, for all practical purposes, virtual slave labor. My protest increased and the physical beatings became more severe. Never, not even once, did a single teacher attempt to talk to me about my chronic truancy or anything. I was a lost child, and they accepted that. I dropped out and left home. My real school came when I was working with carnivals and fairs from the age of 15 at county and state fairs throughout much of America. Most nights I would sleep in the carnival tents and spend my money on food and partying. Although it would seem to have been the last place a teenage kid should have been on his own, even though I didn't appreciate it, those on the lot knew that I was a kid and seldom did I go anywhere without a watchful eye keeping me out of trouble. We worked long, hard hours, and when the lights went out on the midway, we'd gather in our groups, often pooling our money to rent a motel room and then to party to excess. Returning to Florida in late 1977, Mike met Kathy Marie, a girl he knew in high school. They became inseparable, and by late summer she was pregnant. Barely 18, they returned home and got married, but with no formal qualifications, Mike joined the army to provide for his family. But his career ended abruptly after he got into an accident while on duty and was given an honorable discharge. Within months, we returned to the road together, living in our car in countless motel rooms. Both of us still too young and irresponsibly parents ourselves, and still parting way beyond excess. Their relationship and others didn't last. And by the beginning of 1983, Mike Lambrix was a divorced, 22-year-old father of three, living in a trailer on a remote ranch in the Glades County with his girlfriend, Frances Smith, a married 31-year-old who had recently abandoned her own three kids in search of a new start. Life moved along smoothly and without event, until the night of Saturday, February the 5th, when Mike and Frances decided to go into town and have a few drinks at a local bar. There, they met 35-year-old Clarence Edward Moore, otherwise known as Lawrence Lamberson, otherwise known as Chip, and a local 19-year-old waitress, Alicia Bryant. They went on to another bar to drink and dance, and when it closed, they agreed to go back to Lambrix's place for a late-night dinner. He was unaware that Clarence Chip Moore had a criminal history, which included drug smuggling and violence against women. What you're about to hear is Mike reading an extract from a letter he sent to Alicia Bryant's mother, explaining in detail what happened that night. 
The trailer was very small, with the kitchen directly adjoining the living room. It was run down, but all I could afford with my job. All of us went inside, and Francis started cooking. Myself and Chip went outside. For a bit, we sat outside on the car and talked. All of us were having a pretty good time, joking around, and even as Francis said, teasing with each other. Well, Chip wanted to play a joke on Alicia, so came up with the idea to scare the girls, just harmless fun. At first, we both went to the back side of the trailer and scratched on the window, but they couldn't see or hear us. So Chip went across the first fence to hide behind a feed trough that was set in a stand of young oak trees. I was to tell Alicia that he wanted her to come outside. I went back to the trailer, and I got her. Because of what it was all, all about, only Alicia came out. Francis stayed inside. And as you know from both trials, one area she is consistent in is the fact that I looked normal and had nothing with me. You also know from trial that Chip was killed in such a way that it would have been impossible for me not to have had blood on me, so he had to still be alive when Alicia had came outside. Me and your daughter went out, going beyond the trailer across the first fence. The area where Chip was only about 60 to 70 feet behind the trailer, so it only took a moment. Chip had climbed on top of the feed trough into a lower branch of the tree. As we walked up, he jumped down, and you know your daughter. She didn't think it was funny at all. She got angry and more or less cussed Chip out. The two of them then started arguing pretty good, so I back, started back to the trailer, going the long way around the fence. It wasn't my business with their arguing, and it wouldn't be right for me to stay. It took maybe ten minutes to get to the trailer, and about the time I got into the yard, I heard a scream, which I could tell was Alicia. The only two out there were her and Chip, and there was no one, nothing else around us. I stopped for a moment to stand. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. 
Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And then I heard her scream again. That's when I knew something was wrong, so I started back out. I was right there at the car, so I went by, and without even thinking about it, I grabbed the tire iron. It took me maybe a moment or two to cross the fence and go back there, but they were not at the feed trough, and it was pitch dark. I had no light or nothing, so I kept going in the direction of which I heard the scream. As I went back, I heard sounds towards the rear fence, which was about 300 feet away. I went towards that and came upon them. There was enough light to determine that Chip was straddled over your daughter and shaking her like a rag doll. As I came up, I told him to get off her, or something to that effect, in which he cussed me out, telling me to get lost. All of this took place within a matter of seconds. There was no time to think, and he wasn't letting Alicia up, so I pushed at him with the tire iron, hard enough to knock him to the far side. He immediately came up at me from a crouching position like a cat. I don't know, but as he did, I just started swinging, and he went down. It wasn't intentional, but a spontaneous reaction. I then tried to help your daughter. You may not believe it, or even want to believe it. I went to your daughter, and at first I thought she was only unconscious. I picked her up and started back towards the trailer, but she was too heavy. I got about halfway and had to set her down, and when I did, she was still out, seemingly unconscious and I tried to give her mouth to mouth, but she was not responsive. At that point, I didn't know what to do. There was nothing I could do. I went back to Chip and it was obvious he was dead. I then went back to the trailer. It was like I was a third party looking down. I felt totally disoriented. When I got back to the trailer, Francis was startled by all the blood. All I said to her was that they were both dead. I never told her or anyone else how or why. That part she either made up so that she could would be more clear or the state did to get their conviction by fabricating a motive. Francis did several times ask me why, but I repeatedly told her that I didn't want to talk about it. For one thing, I didn't want to get her into trouble. I couldn't go to the police because I was, as a few weeks earlier, I had walked away from a state work release center. I know the state has convinced you that I'm a career criminal, but in fact, my only criminal act was about three checks that bounced out of my own account. I've done lots of stupid things in my life and have had a few bouts with the law, mostly stupid stuff, but never for intentionally going out and committing a crime. I wrote those checks because I had a lot of bills. For that, I pled guilty without a trial because I was guilty. And when I violated my probation, I again pled guilty without a trial because I was guilty. For that was my only previous conviction, and I got two years in prison. I left and eventually went to LaBelle, Florida, under a new name. I got a job and even went to church, but not once did I break the law. Then all of this came up. I know I was wrong in not going to the police, but I felt I had no choice. If you got this far, then I just wanted to say that I don't expect you to believe any of this. The only thing that you have left... To preserve the memory of your daughter is to see that justice is carried out. I just wrote because I felt that you have the right to know. I'm really sorry that you had to go through this and for what happened. As much as you need to believe that I did kill your daughter, I did not. 
The person who killed her is already dead. In all honesty, I don't regret that he is. The more I think about what he'd done, what he was involved in, and that what he would do to someone else if not stopped, how can I regret it? That night I did nothing intentional except try to do what was right. I had no way of knowing how it would all come out, but now I do. I am guilty of gross stupidity and bad judgment in what took place that night. However, I am not guilty of murder. Understandably, Alicia's mum never replied. That was over three decades ago. Since then, Mike's been put on death watch three times, each time going through the mental process of preparing to die. The first was in 1988. Today, the state of Florida execute by lethal injection. Back then, it was the electric chair. On the lower floor of Q-Wing is Florida's death house, where those scheduled for execution are held until they get either get a stay of execution or be put to death. I spent my time on death watch, coming within hours of execution. How do I describe being taken from my solitary cell, handcuffed and shackled and chained, then silently paraded down the long main corridor and delivered to the warden's office, and ordered to then stand before him as he read the black border death warrant, calmly advising me that the day and the hour of my own execution has now been scheduled. Within 24 hours of the scheduled execution, the designated execution team was required to perform a mock execution to make sure the electric chair was properly functioning. Although separated by a steel door, I could hear their voices. And as I sat in my bunk with my feet on the concrete floor, as they repeatedly tested old Sparky, I could physically feel each massive surge of electricity pulsating through the floor beneath me. A few hours later, I was again shackled and chained in order to stand before the assistant warden as an unknown individual meticulously measured me for the state-provided suit they intended to use to kill me, then bury me in. Then, with indescribably surreal detachment, I struggled to recall my favorite foods as another prison official impatiently waited to write down what I wanted for my last meal. Only then did I sit down again and silently prayed that uh, last meal would never come. Let me momentarily interject that again, that paragraph is from 1988 and the process has now been changed. Now they measure you for your suit weeks before and they order your last meal weeks before so that's no longer the last minute thing it used to be. Okay. Just, just thought I'd interject that. With growing anxiety, I struggled to not count down the final hours. I would all but involuntarily leap to the cell bars each time the nearby phone would ring, hoping that it would be the call informing me of my stay of execution, and with each disappointment, silently begging then cursing the God that had seemingly abandoned me in that final hour of my need. In my mind, with my execution set for early the next morning, I told myself that they had to grant a stay by 5 p.m. that day, but then 5 p.m. passed, and with each passing moment a part of me died. I methodically paced back and forth, deliberately counting each step out loud in a failed effort to drown out the insistent thundering of each click of the clock on the wall. Then, at long last, that call came. I was told that by a four to three vote, the Florida Supreme Court had rejected my appeal and granted only a 48-hour temporary stay of execution to allow my lawyers to appeal to the federal court. Then just as quickly, they turned back the hands of the clock and told me to start counting it down again. Each second ticked away until there was another long night slowly passed. 
than the hours of yet another long day with no word. On the early evening of my second scheduled execution, the prison arranged for a final visit with my family, but no one came. A few hours later, a federal judge granted Mike another indefinite stay of execution. He's been on death watch once more since then, in February 2016, but his execution was once again halted, this time following a US Supreme Court decision in Hearst versus Florida, which struck down the state's death penalty sentencing system as a violation of the right to trial by jury. In simplistic terms, the Supreme Court want jury verdicts to be unanimous in any death penalty cases. I haven't seen the moon or the stars or set foot on grass outdoors in now well over 32 years. I sometimes wonder if they still exist. It became hard to even remember it. It's funny how human nature to take the things that matter most for granted until they are long gone and even lost forever. Many times I've regretted, had I taken the deal under Florida statutory sentencing guidelines, the maximum sentence would have been 27 years with 10 days off for each month for good behavior. So would I, I would have been released around 1997. But if I can turn back the hands of time, then I'd go back a little bit further and none of this would have ever happened in the first place. Who doesn't look back at their life and wish they could have followed a different path? Of course I wish I'd lived my life differently. Even though I was pretty screwed up, I was making a genuine effort to pull my life together. And if not for this case, I'm sure I would have done that. It was in my nature to be in a relationship, so I'm pretty sure I would have found someone and settled down and built a real life. My biggest regret is that I wasn't able to be part of my three children's life as they grew up. When I was charged, my youngest was barely a year old. Because of that, despite my efforts to reach out to them, they don't really know me. And now it's the same with my seven grandchildren. I've only met two of them once when they were very young so they won't remember me at all. There's an infinite number of other regrets, but not being part of my children's and now my grandchildren's lives is by far my biggest. A few photos hang on my wall to remind me of the generation that has now passed by. There's the photo of me taken just before my arrest in early 1983, a young man who still had his whole life ahead of him. A photo of my now long-divorced ex-wife holding our daughter on the day we brought her home from the hospital, now faded and tattered at the edges. And then the more recent photo of me holding my grandson in a visiting park. My children were so young when I was first imprisoned, and now I'm a grandfather. My full head of hair is long gone, and what hasn't fallen out is turning gray. As for the crime, if I had the power to do anything differently, then none of this would have happened. But if it was to be, and could not be changed, then the one thing I would have done differently would be to go back to the police immediately that night and tell them what happened rather than run away from it. Had the truth of what really happened came out, I wouldn't have spent my life on death row. We don't get to plan how our lives turn out. The truth is, the way I was living my life back then, I probably would have been dead by now. With my irresponsible use of alcohol and recreation drugs and my passion for fast cars and motorcycles, I probably would have killed myself many years ago. Many of those I ran around with back then are long dead, vehicle accidents, drug overdoses, natural causes. I'd like to think I could have had a good life, but in truth, I may also have been killed long ago. Who knows? 
I am not who I was 32 years ago, no more than any of us are. I'd like to think that my spiritual consciousness has grown and evolved into something better than what was, so death doesn't scare me. Most of us are never afforded the luxury to prepare for death. That's the irony of being executed. It allows one to not merely confront, but to prepare. And what about his last meal? Inmates are allowed to spend $40, so I was wondering what he would choose. When he was on death watch in 88, he asked for pizza. But reading through his letters, it looked like once his mum came back into his life, his request changed. My mom and me had a pact that when I was exonerated and released, and we both believed I would, she would cook up a Thanksgiving dinner to celebrate my freedom. My last meal will be my way of sharing that Thanksgiving dinner with those who mean the most to me. I just wish we could all eat together. In my world, death is no stranger. Death is the only absolute reality in life, and everything else is just a game we play to get there. I realize the uncertainty of my fate remains irrelevant, because in the end, nobody gets out alive. We are all born condemned to die, and perhaps for the purpose of discovering who I was and had the strength to become, it was necessary for me to follow this particular path. You've been listening to Regrets of the Dying. I'd just like to say thanks to Jan Ahrens, Mike's pen pal of over 25 years, who trusted me with their correspondence and helped me connect with Mike. Jan runs Lifeline, a UK charity that supports and befriends prisoners on death row in America. Thanks also to Rebecca Marr, a journalist and recent graduate from Florida University, who kindly recorded Mike on location. If you've liked this programme, then please subscribe and rate it on iTunes or the Acast app. The more positive reviews we get, the easier it will be for other people to find us. Next time. I wish I perhaps hadn't spent so much of my childhood worrying about her. Um, and maybe I hadn't been so good all the time, or so scared about misbehaving. This was a proper podcast, with support from Acast. Goodbye, and thanks for joining me. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.